Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 43 through verse 52. Verses 43 through 52, God's holy word from Mark, chapter 14. God's word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came out, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me? But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. As far as the reading of God's word May bless it to us. So what are your fears or phobias? Or do you consider yourself to be fearless? Well, few of us, of course, are fearless. And as well as there's a host of common fears. You might be afraid of snakes or spiders, heights or public speaking, failure or so on. But that's the thing about fear and bravery is that it's quite selective. You can be courageous in one area and cowardly in another. A girl can jump out of a plane to skydive like it's nothing, but then she screams and hops on a chair inside of a, at the side of a black widow. A guy can ride a bull only to faint in terror at the sight of a dirty diaper. Yes, fears can be random and inexplicable. As well as cowardice and bravery, fright and boldness can sometimes flip like a switch. One moment you're feeling daring and the next panic grips you. You often cannot control it, and we struggle to understand our fears, even though we feel that our fears say a lot about us. But one of those quick switches is about to happen to the disciples, and yet it says more about our Lord than it does about them. So where we stopped last week in Mark was very much mid-scene. It wasn't even a cliffhanger with a to-be-continued but it was more like someone turned off the TV abruptly for no obvious reason. Indeed, our Lord was mid-dialogue. After three unanswered prayers, he was correcting his disciples for falling asleep praying. They used prayer as a sleep sleeping pill instead of as an exercise to stay alert. Thus, in their drowsiness, they didn't notice the loud approach of many people. Jesus pointed twice, see, The Son of Man is handed over to sinners. See, my betrayer has arrived. Our Lord, being mid-remark, and out pops Judas. The unsettling presence of Judas silences our Lord. And we shouldn't miss the tension, for remember that the other disciples are still largely ignorant of Judas' duplicity. They hadn't figured out yet who was the betrayer. And here Judas steps out of the olive trees. Has he been with him the whole time? Where did he come from? 
the groggy mental wheels are slowly turning. And then, as their eyes adjust, the disciples notice Judas is leading a crowd. Wait a minute. This crowd is armed with swords and clubs. They're wearing uniforms. This is a battalion of the temple police. Indeed, this squad represents the the highest temple authority of the Sanhedrin. They were deputized and dispatched by the elders, scribes, and priests to execute a nighttime raid and capture of an outlaw. This holy SWAT team of the temple flanks Judas. And this armed posse divulges expectations. You don't send in the Marines for a low-level offender with no history of violence. No, you go in locked and loaded because you expect resistance, and you do it to prevent or to overcome any potential for retaliation or violence. A large armed force is your insurance policy to ensure a successful mission. The priests are taking no chances with any opposition. Next, Mark gives us a quick flashback in verse 44. Judas, the betrayer, had given the squadron orders a signal. The one I kiss is he, seize him and take him away securely. But this is more than being an informant or a spy selling secrets. Judah has been promoted to a special agent. He acts like a sergeant who leads the special forces unit into the op. He gives the signal for the go-ahead. Judas has gone from being a a disciple to suiting up for the police. The betrayer has turned officer for the hit team. This is chilling, but the green light signal makes it nauseous. By the kiss, you know who to rest. Forcibly slap bracelets on the one I kiss. Judas camouflages his hostility beside a sign of affection. Now, back in the day, kisses were not just romantic embraces between a man and a woman. No, they were also affectionate greetings between family members and close groups of brotherhoods. As a disciple to a teacher, a kiss was an act of honor and respect. It was a sign of homage and loyalty. Servants kissed lords in fealty. Moreover, as a brotherhood, as a close team of ministers, this kiss expresses a unique bond of fellowship and affection. It said, greeting, brother, we are as devoted and committed as true family. And so Judas perverts an endearing embrace of homage and brotherhood into a go sign for arresting and subduing. Now, we aren't told the placement of the kiss. Greeting kisses could be on the feet, on the hand, on the cheek, or on the lips. Either way, it's up close and personal. And yet, with this flashback completed, next we see the scene unfold in painful slow motion. Judas reveals himself, and without a second delay, he gets close to our Lord. In the kindest voice he can fake, Rabbi, and he kissed Jesus. 
feigning a dearly beloved disciple, Judas invades the personal space of our Lord to molest him with hatred. With poisonous lip gloss, he plants one on the cheek of the Son of God. This kiss burned as with acid. It seared flesh as if a branding iron. The delicate kiss on the cheek was a sharp blade in the back of Jesus, slipping through his ribs and piercing his heart. This peck ruptures internal bleeding in our Lord. Like his true father, the devil, Judas hides his revolting animosity in a kiss. In this kiss, Judas or Jesus felt the fangs of that ancient serpent. To watch our beloved Savior be wounded so deeply, knocks the wind out of your soul. But even more harrowing is that Jesus stood there and took it. The disciples didn't fully understand what was going on here, but our Lord did. He watched his abuser draw near and touch him inappropriately. And Jesus didn't shove him away. He didn't raise a knee in self-defense. Jesus let Judas lay the toxin of Satan on his cheek cheek with his lips. The burden of sin that Jesus must bear for us keeps getting heavier and heavier with each moment. And the plans of Judas went off without a hitch. With a kiss laid, he steps back and the police officers pounce. They lay hands on him and seize him securely. And this idiom for laying hands on isn't gentle, polite, or respectful of one's civil rights. That is, they didn't take time to read Jesus' rights, but with all the gruffness of police brutality, they subdued Jesus. Did they throw him on the ground with a knee on his neck? Well, Mark doesn't share details, but these sinners wrapped their fingers around Jesus as if he was resisting arrest, even though he wasn't. To take into captivity the meek and mild Jesus, these officers practice overkill. And the cruelty of the battalion is further indicated by one of the disciples. A disciple who's standing nearby refuses to put up with such brutality, and so he will take the law into his own hands. He will repay in kind. He unsheathes his saber and he strikes the high priest's servant uh, to remove his ear. Now, this act of violent retaliation has many layers. For one, this servant is not some lowly slave, but he is the highest-ranking officer present. He is the captain or general of the temple police who represent and bears the authority of the high priest himself. This, then, is a strategic blow. Take out the generals, and hopefully all the soldiers will fall into chaos. Next, this is a lethal, offensive blow. If he got the ear, this means he was aiming for the head. This was an an attempted decapitation. Of course, it wasn't very effective. He went for the jugular and only managed to pierce the guy's ear. Besides, What was this one disciple going to do against a small army? Did he think he would zorro his way out of there with Jesus on his back? Furthermore, why does Mark suppress 
the disciples' identity. From the other Gospels, we know that this is Peter. Why not name him? Did Mark sign a non-disclosure agreement with Peter? Well, the anonymity of the disciples, or the anonymity of this disciple, may be Mark protecting his good name. It may be keeping his shame private. Or maybe it's done so that this one disciple can represent all of them better. But we cannot figure out for sure. Either way, though, this swing of the sword shows that this disciple understood that violent, violent resistance was fitting. To oppose and retaliate with lethal force was proper to save Jesus from the cross. To take up arms to prevent the death of Jesus was justified to this disciple, which betrays a gross misunderstanding. Indeed, obstacles that prevent Jesus from the cross are implicitly satanic. This disciple may think that he is being a help to Jesus, but he's actually being used by the evil one as a hurdle to the cross. Finally, though, you have to admit that this disciple shows impressive courage and boldness. His zealous love to save Jesus filled him with an outstanding bravery and fearlessness to charge into battle in the middle of the night against a much larger and better armed posse. This is daredevil and valiant. This is like Benaiah jumping into that snowy pit to kill a lion. This disciple lets out the battle cries of William Wallace. Of course, all his bravery, he has all the bravery and none of the skill. He is no mighty man, for he barely achieves a flesh wound. Nevertheless, what is also odd about Mark's narrative here is that Jesus completely ignores this fighting disciple. Jesus doesn't say a word to his swashbuckler. Mark doesn't record Jesus even healing the guy's ear or anything. Instead, Jesus addresses the militia as if the incident didn't occur. He rebukes the SWAT team for overkill. Why are you armed to the teeth for me? You swarm on me as if I was a robber. And robber here has the sense of bandit, terrorist, or revolutionary. They prepared for Jesus' arrest as if he was a violent insurrectionist. And this is so unfitting as Jesus has been daily teaching in the temple among them. He has no history of armed violence or political rebellion. He didn't conduct himself in secret, planting covert schemes. But every day in the wide open, mingling peacefully among the worshipers in the temple, Jesus was teaching daily. They could have arrested him at any point during the day without a single sword or a baseball bat. Our Lord has been both docile and lawful. Thus, he rebukes them for overkill, hypocrisy, and cowardice. They have no reasonable reasonable excuse for such a show of force. Instead, the priests were afraid of the people They were concerned about losing favor with the populace. Thus, this nighttime weaponized arrest says more about priestly insecurity and cowardice than it does about Jesus. Nevertheless, let it be. 
so be it, so the scriptures may be fulfilled. Jesus exposes, excuse me, the wickedness of this high priestly posse, but he will not resist. For all of this has to go down to fulfill the Old Testament promises. Thus Jesus will not retaliate, he will not fight back, but in obedience, he will let the hands of sinners carry him off. Now our Lord doesn't allude to any specific Old Testament passage. He doesn't draw our minds to that or this passage. Rather, this is a general or comprehensive reference to the whole of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets foretold the sufferings of Christ, which his arrest is part of. And so he must obediently let these sinners seize him. Yet this submission to scripture and willingness to be taken prisoner doesn't just castigate the hypocrisy of the police force, but it also admonishes the disciples. This is a clear rebuke to the sword swinging. The disciple boldly charged into battle, but our Lord peacefully surrenders to the handcuffs. If the master puts up no fight, this is an order not to retaliate or resist. There must be no counterattack, no violence, no self-defense. Here Jesus tells his disciples no fighting, which makes, uh, which flips a switch in them. The bold bravery to do battle takes an about face into panic. They hear the directions to surrender and all the disciples abandon our Lord. They fly like scared sparrows. Peter once boasted that he left everything to follow Jesus, but now he reverses this and he abandons Jesus to flee into the night. Behind the sword, Peter felt fearless and stout. But once Jesus outlawed the sword, Peter is overcome with terror. The order for non-resistance turns all the disciples into cowards, scaredy cats. How the misguided zeal of the disciples is exposed. If they get to use violent power, if they have the weapons of the world... The disciples feel like lions. But as as soon as Jesus submits to the way of the cross, they become as mice. Once our Lord chooses the way way of defeat, death, and losing, they abandon all courage. Sure, they will heroically follow Jesus into battle. To die with Jesus in an armed conflict? Sure thing. To perish with the sword in your hand is honorable. It it wins accolades on the world stage. But to surrender without resistance, forget that. Before the cross, the disciples are too afraid. The shame of surrendering to the cross is too much for their pride. Thus they save themselves and desert Jesus. They fell asleep on him, and now they run off to protect number one, and to preserve some semblance of self-respect. It's better to flee into the night and fight another day than just to give up and lose. To become losers with Jesus, their egos will not suffer. And yet, as the disciples forsake our Savior in fear, 
Mark tells us about one in particular. Indeed, we come to one of the most mysterious and odd passages in the New Testament. There was a young man who followed Jesus who was wearing only a linen cloth. The soldiers seized him, he forsook his covering, and he ran off naked. He got away in his birthday suit and left the garment in the hands of the officers. But what is up with this? Well, there's more questions than answers. First, who is this guy? Well, it says he did follow Jesus, which means he's a disciple of some sort, but he might not be an apostle, just another random disciple. Indeed, Mark's anonymity for this guy has caused an avalanche of speculation in church history. Some have guessed that it was John, others Mark, the gospel writer, and even some thought Lazarus. But simply, we do not know. Next, there's what he is wearing. Why is he wrapped in a linen blanket with nothing else on? What's he doing in his pajamas? Again, we do not have a clue. Though his actions do make some sense, for the temple police attempt to arrest him. They're here for Jesus, but their warrant includes any of his followers. Being arrested is a threat for the disciples, and so they grab this guy. Conveniently, though, all he has on is his bathrobe. If someone grabs you by the coat, you can slip out of it and get away. And so rather than being taken, he drops his robe and sprints off nude. Now, of course, public nudity was shameful and vulnerable. This is an act of extreme distress and humiliation. This guy prefers the embarrassment of nudity over going with Jesus. Being naked in public or being arrested with Jesus, you pick one. Well, he chose the disgrace of nudity over the humiliation of Christ's cross. So abhorrent and terrifying is the cross going with Jesus that a naked escape is better. Thus, in this naked flight, we see the unbearable disgrace and burden of the cross that Jesus is taking upon himself. To fight oppression, sure, the disciples will do this. But to submit without resistance to sinners? No way. To let the betrayer kiss you? Not a chance. To surrender to be a loser heading for the cross? Never. But these are the weights layered and piled upon our Lord. And he just kept taking it. He let Judas molest him. He permitted the police to brutalize him. He did not resist or punch back. Jesus also suffered all his friends and disciples to run away. They chose the shame of their own flesh rather than to be associated with Jesus. And in this, Jesus shows his courageous love for you. To save you from your sins, Jesus braved all these cruelties and disgraces. When all else fled in fear, he stood the course. Indeed, on the cross, Jesus will be the one who ends up without a stitch of clothing. Nailed to that tree, Jesus took upon himself all the guilt of your sin, as well as the shame of our rebellion. This is the cross of Christ that is the power of God unto salvation for you. 
It's foolishness and reproachful to the world. But to us in faith, it is our life, our forgiveness, our joy in our Savior, who loved us even to death upon a tree. And as we see the courage of Christ's love for you to go to the cross, may it fill us with the bravery of our Savior. Yes, may we depart from the honor systems of the world to bear the reproach of Christ. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. Rather, let us eschew the weapons of the world to take up the spiritual weapons of heaven, the word of the gospel, the love of Christ, and the way of the cross. For the world may steal our clothes, but in Christ you are never found naked. Rather, dressed in his righteousness, the Spirit preserves you in Christ through all the fears and terrors of this world to keep you for the world to come, for your own resurrection. Thus praise the Lord for the wonderful salvation of Christ that he braved all the shame to die for us so that we might live in him. Amen. Let us pray.